Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Stephanie Boloris. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by senior analyst Ali Mellon and principal analyst Renee Murphy to discuss how ongoing geopolitical risk can influence your security strategies. Welcome both. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So before we really dig into this conversation, can you share what we have as a working definition for geopolitical risk at Forrester? Absolutely. So based off of the research that we have, the way we define geopolitical risk is as the ever-changing political policies and actions of a state and the related countermeasures, economics, and geographical effects of them. So there are a lot of examples of this, especially recently from the war in Ukraine to 9-11 to state-sponsored cyber attacks, sanctions, and others. And Renee, how much of a risk is it? Like, where do we rank geopolitical risk for organizations and, and what's behind that ranking? So in 2021, um, it, it was actually number two. So we do we do that survey every year. What's your top 10 um, systemic risks? Geopolitical risk was number two. This year, it was number six, which is interesting, right? We did the survey before the war. We were dealing with economic uncertainty. That was the number one um systemic risk this year, economic uncertainty, and they're probably not wrong. So this did slide a little bit, but thanks to the war in Ukraine and all of the sanctions and all of the misery that's been driven from that, um, you know, Ukraine was the breadbasket of Europe That's a te- or, and Africa. That's a terrible thing for them not to be working, right? Um, all of that has come to a head. And I, I don't think, I think when we looked at this and said, we're coming out of the pandemic and, um, and geopolitical risk isn't something we need to worry about. It's economic risk in our own countries. Um, that was before that war broke out. And I think if we surveyed them again today, that would not be the answer. Okay. And it is, in one sense, it is a single risk. You know, geopolitics can lead to um, economic conflicts, um, military conflicts, you, you name it, but isn't, it's also an impact to existing risks. It's another dimension to risks you already have. That's how I like to think about it. It's just context for risk, right? So whenever I think about, whenever I do a risk assessment, I'll sit down and say, okay, here's the, if we don't patch our servers, bad things will happen to us, right? (laughs) Of course, that's what will happen. But I would also ask, is there a reputational impact of that? Of course there is. How severe would that be? Is there a sustainability one? Probably. Let's figure that out. Is there a geopolitical impact? Maybe. What else are we doing? Did we stand with Ukraine? Because if we did, we're now a target for um, Russian to the Russians to attack, right? There's a lot that goes on in figuring all that out. So yeah, Steph, I would say like just out of the gate, yeah, it's a risk. But how do you put that in the registry, right? So geopolitical, like the it's geopolitical risk, and if we don't resolve it, bad things will happen. It'll cost us a lot of money. That's true. But what if I said to you, it's an impact of all your existing risks? Go through your risk registry right now and say, does this, could we be impacted by a geopolitical threat? Could this be impacted by a geopolitical threat? Can this be impacted? And if the answer is yes, you've got another mitigation strategy to do. And it has everything to do with making sure you don't get caught um, in that geopolitical chess match that you may find yourself in. So I would argue, go look at the registry. I bet it impacts 80% of it. Right. And so there's kind of a challenge then in that if you don't have a sophisticated approach to risk management to begin with, layering in ge- geopolitical risk could be problematic. Are there other 
challenges that companies deal with or even just risk managers when it comes to managing geopolitical risk? You know, an optimism bias, as an example. Yeah, all the biases, right? There's optimism bias. Um, there's pessimistic biases. Like I, like I'm the pessimist bias. Like I would never, I would almost never see opportunity. Like as a risk manager, like I'm so into liability that finding the opportunity has to come out of me mitigating the liability, right? So, like, uh, so a bias is rooted in our, especially optimism bias, right? It's rooted in our in our ability as human beings not to be able to, I don't know see how bad it could possibly get. That optimism bias is what get, trips us up every time. So Steph, here's what I'll say. Without a formal risk program that allows us to quantifiably um, put together what this means, we're gonna run into all of those biases, every single one of them, right? Um, you know, And the only risk program I've ever seen that weeds those out to make sure you don't have those as part of your risk management program, wait for it, it was NASA. So if you would like to do risk management the way NASA does risk management, you'll think about this stuff all the time. If you want to do risk management like a CISO does risk management, think about all your risks. Think about how you're going to mitigate those, what that residual risk looks like, and if that could be targeted by a geopolitical foe. If it can, your risk strategy is not done. And I don't, so Steph, if you look at it that way, I would say, I'm not asking you to layer a whole lot more onto that. I'm asking you to like, Define one thing. Who's Dorothy? Is she the 16-year-old girl in Kansas who sits down at the table and writes, Dear Aunt M, hate you, hate Kansas, took the dog, Dorothy? Or is she a girl who lands in a foreign country, murders the first woman she meets, is radicalized by the local government, and then is radicalized as three more idiots, she does drugs, she steals goods and services, she kills more people, and then she tries to escape in a hot air balloon? Who's Dorothy? Well, that depends on where you are. That's the context. If I'm in Kansas, she'll be back. She didn't take a coat and she doesn't have any money. She'll be back, right? But if she's in Oz, we need the National Guard. That girl's got a body count, right? So when I when I look at the geopolitical risk, I would say, in the context of Oz, Dorothy is a huge geopolitical risk. In the context of Kansas, not at all. Our response to her would be different based on that context. I think that's why it's important to look at every single risk and say, what's the geopolitical impact of this? Because then it leads me to be able to find all of that stuff um, and be able to address it to have a really low, you know, geopolitical exposure. Okay. So I love that analogy or that example. And it's sort of a geopolitical threat model exercise, if you will. Could you break that down a little bit more? What's involved? What are the goals? What are the outcomes of the exercise? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of pieces of this because it is a big, um, it is a big project. There's a lot of different ways that you can go with this. And ultimately what you need to do is have a really good understanding of what threats actually exist. Who's going to be targeting your firm? What results are they hoping to achieve? This looks like understanding the nation states that would be targeting you when and why. Part of the challenge with geopolitical risk is that it has a huge effect on private organizations, but they largely have no control over that fact and they won't exactly know when or why. And so a lot of this comes, the reason that threat modeling is so important here is because a lot of this comes back to that preparation element and being as prepared as possible, trying to anticipate as much as possible. And so that really comes back to understanding who's going to target you and why and when, most importantly, 
what are they going to be looking for? Is this an espionage target? Is this a target for some type of disruptive or destru destructive attack? Are they looking to use your product or your platform to spread misinformation or disinformation? And how can you look at your business through that lens of what it could feasibly be used for by these nation states? And once you have a better understanding of that, figure out what data they're actually going to be targeting, what parts of your business they're most likely to target and what they're trying to access and then test, try to identify what it would look like if they were actually to try to target your organization today, what would your team do? How would your team know how to respond? How are you making sure that you can look at the ecosystem and say, okay, if we have to predict what's going to happen in the next six months, we think it will be X, Y, and Z. And so we need to run exercises ahead of time to make sure that we're prepared for that. It has to be a cyclical exercise. And one of the reasons why CISOs are so well positioned to do this is because we do a lot of this already with the threat modeling that we do for cyber attacks as one particular piece. Now we're just expanding it to the other ways that the business can be affected by different nation state attacks. I sometimes wonder too, do CISOs have the ability to really put themselves in the shoes of a geopolitically motivated cyber attacker? You know, because we understand cyber criminals, we understand their the way they make money <laughs> off of ransomware and other types of cyber crime. I think often putting yourselves in the shoe of a nation state attacker is different. So you might just be a large health insurance provider. Why would a nation state want to attack me? You know, maybe you don't connect the dots that the pers the vast amount of personal information that I might have on millions of individuals could be married to another data set that would give a nation state incredibly detailed information about, you know, very sensitive individuals. Um, so I always found that is, you know, do they always connect the dots about why they might actually be a target? But I mean, look how complicated that gets, though, Steph. Like, like back in 2015, I said it was the year of the healthcare hack, and it was, but not for the reasons you think. No one wanted money. China had a huge problem in that so many people had cancer that their um, health their health costs were outpacing their GDP for like three years in a row. Keeping people alive was more money, cost more money than they were bringing in as a country, which is crazy, right? Um, their answer to that was to steal the schematics for an MRI machine and to steal all the compounding information and oncology information they could find. So if you were a cancer hospital, you got breached that year. And it had nothing to do, it had everything to do with patient records, but it was so they could cure cancer in their own countries without wasting 25 years on the research. That, and and I, I don't know if I were a CISO sitting in a hospital, I would think, number one, that that would happen, and number two, that that would be the reason why. Like, I would think you want that data because you want to, I don't know, embarrass me or, um, you know, make my stock go down. No, I, they were literally trying to prevent cancer in their own country, they just didn't have a long time to figure it out. I think you're right when you say that. How do you put yourself in that scenario unless you're willing to sit around and think about that stuff all day long? And I think it does depend, too, because there are some organizations that will be prepared for this, because if we think about where a lot of security professionals started, they either started on the attacker side or they started by working for a nation state and came up through that method. And so there's a, an element of this where at the end of the day, you have a bunch of people who that used to be their jobs. And so hopefully there are a lot of CISOs that either know someone like that or they have had that experience. But beyond that, 
there does need to be a way to communicate what's the potential um, what's the potential threat that your organization could pose when thinking about it in the context of a national security threat or nation state threat. And so that I agree that there's got to be a, a better way to describe that, especially when it comes to some of these private sector organizations where you wouldn't exactly look at something like PII and say, well, that's going to be a target for a nation state. <laughs> I mean, I always, every time we have this conversation, I go back and I think about Sony and I think of Michael Lighton being like calling the CIA and being like, yeah, hey, CIA, Michael Lighton, CEO of uh, Sony. Hey, I'm just wondering, do they have a missile, the North Koreans, that could land on Culver City? Because that would be bad for me. Like, I, I, like, in my mind, I think to myself, like, can you imagine him having to make that, like, that call to the CIA to figure out if his office building could be hit by a missile sent from the North Koreans, right? All over a stupid movie. So I feel like what we were just discussing is a perfect segue to discuss reputational risk and how that fits in this type of planning. What are your thoughts there? So I'll, I'll start, um, Allie, with, with just the idea that for me, reputational risk is like a run flat tire, right? Like, like you don't do something and it pops and then, oh, it wrecked, cars wrecked and everybody. It's not, that's not usually how it works, right? It's like a run flat tire. I got 50 miles to get to the tire place or I'm going to ruin the rims, right? Um, if that's the case, then we should be able to plan for that, right? We should be able to put metrics around when we see the, the reputation being siphoned away from us. We should be able to put a stop to that, mitigate that risk, manage those outcomes. And we should have seen it coming, I would argue, right? So do I think it, it plays a part in for CISOs? Of course. Do I think they should speak to it on a regular basis? Yes, right? That's one of the things we work so hard to protect in IT is the organization's reputation. What I would like to see the CISOs do, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, Allie, but find some metrics around that to be able to report on it in a meaningful way. Because once you can do that, and then you can move hearts and minds, right? I totally agree. And that's the thing. This is such a big opportunity for CISOs to start showing a very direct impact to reputation based on how they're able to respond to geopolitical risk and to geopolitical events. And that's something that's more direct than we've been able to see even with cyber attacks in the past. And it's another area where the CISO is so used to being reactive to incidents happening. And this is just another type of incident that's happening and they have the opportunity to be reactive. It's something that is out of the wheelhouse of most of the rest of the business. And so it's a very unique opportunity for them to come in and refocus on what is most important and what the entirety of the security organization is there for, which is to protect the brand and to protect customers' data as a part of that, employee data as a part of that, et cetera. I almost wonder if the CISO hesitates because this is just so far out of the bounds of what they're trained to do or even their background, um, you know, to, to, your, to the point that you made earlier, Renee, like this requires an understanding of diplomacy, political science, um, or even, you know, this year, as example, when Russia invaded Ukraine, we all, we all assumed that there would be massive cyber attacks across Europe, uh, against the U.S., um, against anybody who sympathized with the Ukrainian who offer Ukrainian army who offered Ukraine support. It didn't actually happen. There were cyber attacks directly on Ukraine by the Russians in advance of the invasion. You know, they sort of peppered um, <laughs> all kinds of attacks against critical systems and critical infrastructure to be expected. The attacks, the other attacks never came. So what if you were the CISO, you know, ringing the alarm? You know, we've got to prep, we've got to reinforce everything. 
and then no attacks came, is your credibility undermined? Um, but the interesting thing is now people are really worried about cyber attacks because Russia is completely cornered. So now everyone's like, aha, now the attacks are going to come because they've got nothing left. So it's sort of, you know, it's, it's tough because you might put yourself out there, you know, raise the issue, suggest the countermeasures, then nothing happens. Uh, is your credibility then undermined for the, for the next time? So then maybe the, the answer to that is um, I don't go out on that limb just yet. Right. I'll put the metrics in place. I'll look at leading and lagging indicators. I'll and then I'll let that help me guide on the decision I'm going to make to say it or not. I'm willing to say at this point, I don't think there will be cyber attacks on anyone other than Ukraine. I don't think Russia's going to do it. But at the end of the day, what CISO is sitting around reading Foreign Affairs magazine, listening to all the debate going on about the cybersecurity capabilities of a foreign adversary? Like, I read that stuff like I can't get enough of it. But, Steph, that's what you pay me to do. I don't know too many CISOs that have that luxury. Well, here's the other thing that I'll call out with this, right? Because I, I want to actually take this back to the, the thing that Renee said earlier about fear, uncertainty, and doubt. When everybody thought that Russia was going to use cyber attacks at the beginning of the war in Ukraine on groups that were not in Ukraine, that were outside of Ukraine, that was a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. That was entirely driven by fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Those people who understood the military doctrine of Russia understood that they were posturing. They love to saber rattle. We see this all the time with the way that they approach nukes. But that's the extent of it. They're not going to actually take that next step to perform that cyber attack because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't align to their military doctrine. And so I'd actually argue that when you think about the what you're doing when it comes to geopolitical risk, you need to come back to that idea of not following fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And you need to come back to what the actual data says and what historically the doctrine of the nation has been. And so I'd argue that there will, I mean, I think it's a, this is one specific example. I think the overall point is sound that there are going to be cases where you get this wrong, but a big part of that, it comes back to trust and comes back to saying, hey, I got this one wrong. That doesn't mean I'm going to be wrong about all of these. Here are the steps that I'm taking to make sure that I'm right next time. And when it comes down to events like what happened with Russia and Ukraine and these supposed cyber, cyber attacks that were going to happen, think about, go back and look at that as a retrospective and think about, well, where's the data here that's telling us that this is what Russia is going to do? Because if you go and read up on Russian history, it's not what they're going to do. They were going to target Ukraine. They were going to do everything that they did in Ukraine. There was tons of history to back that up, which again, most people missed. But going out and attacking the US or other countries with cyber attacks without doing any other things like taking advantage of nuclear weapons or invasions, it's just not a part of their doctrine. It's not a part of what they do. And so that's the piece of this that I think is important is leading with the data. And so to, to get back to assessing that risk, um, you know, for companies that have attempted it, are there any common mistakes that they make? I would hate to think that CISOs would take the risk management program and turn it into fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Um, I, I, I would hate to think that that's where we end up in the end, right? If we're really going to look at geopolitical impacts and we're going to look at reputational impacts, we're going to have to do it with a little bit of rigor. 
follow ISO 31000. It's you don't have to do anything big, right? Just make sure your your impact analysis includes geopolitical risk and you'll be fine. As a matter of fact, leave here today and go add it to your impact analysis. Again, wouldn't it be great? I mean, I'm just saying, wouldn't it be great to run a report that says, here's all the controls related to our geopolitical exposure, and here's how we're currently performing on those? That'd be pretty rad, right? You could do it today. You can just go add a drop-down list to your risk registry, and you're off and running. I think that you guys should think like that. Don't think about it as, I have to reinvent the wheel. I have to do a 1,000 things. It's not that complicated, actually. Go through your risk. You go through it once a year anyway. Next time you go through it, add that drop-down list. Put that in there. This is this has geopolitical impacts. This has geopolitical impacts. And that way, next time you're faced with Russia's about to do something, run that report. Here's everything it's going to impact. How can we get busy, you know, making sure that we don't end up with that? Yeah, the the other piece of this, I totally agree with you. And the other piece that I would highlight is that at the end of the day, this is a conversation about trust and about ensuring customer trust, employee trust, and partner trust. And when you step out of the the bits and bytes and look at the bigger, more strategic picture of this, it's really important that every single response to a particular geopolitical challenge is based in values and in your ethics as a company and in what you value as a company. Don't be led by what others are doing or what by what pressures are being put on you because that's an immediate way that you're going to be led down a path that kind of points you out as someone who isn't leading, someone who is following. And what's really important here is in these very difficult times and through these very difficult experiences, customers, employees, partners, they're looking for a leader. They're looking for someone that knows the right thing to do based in their values and that will move in that direction. And one of the challenges with that is that it requires you to move forward without actually looking around and saying, okay, wait, where is everyone moving? You have to be the one that goes first. And so that's the thing that I would highlight is that at the end of the day, when you're having trouble identifying the North Star for how your company should be responding to a particular geopolitical event or geopolitical risk, think about your values, think about how you're going to maintain trust with your customers, your employees and your partners, and let that be the, way, the thing that leads you forward as opposed to swaying public opinion or other factors. Well, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. It was fun. If you like what you heard today, be sure to check out our upcoming security and risk event happening live November 8th through 9th in Washington, D.C. and virtually. To learn more, visit for.com slash SR22. That's F-O-R-R dot com slash SR22. Thanks for listening. <laughs>